Hi everyone, and welcome to the Prototypes Podcast. This is a podcast where innovators, product creators, and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. My name is Margarida, and I'll be your host today. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing my guest, Leah Siren. Leah is currently Head of Product at Jua, where she is leading the company's pivot to begin product-led in machine learning. She has been in tech for over two decades and founded four startups, having crashed two of those into the wall in a spectacular fashion. She's a proponent of empowering product, growth, marketing and sales team through product-led principles in B2B. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Leah, you are very well-known in the world of product-led growth and you have 22 years uh, in your career, right? in tech industry and I know it's uh, a bit difficult to summarize uh, 22 years in just a few words but uh, it would be lovely if you could tell us a bit more about your background and highlight the most important events. Uh-huh. Yeah so it's even worse than that I think at this point it's 24 years and I've been introducing myself for about two years so you know like this is why <laughs> this is why the numbers just keep going up. Um I am a serial entrepreneur. I had four startups in my life and I crashed two of those into the wall. And um, yeah, one of them reasonably successful. I have started at Microsoft uh, a long, long, long time ago. I've always been in SaaS and tech for, for the longest time. And yeah, I'm writing a lot about product like growth, which is about, you know, acquiring customers um, through the product and not through claims. So the base assumption here is, is that we're only doing what really is valuable to the customers and then hope that this actually translates into business value. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Related to product growth, you are a big person in this topic uh, mm -hmm. and I want to go there in this podcast to that topic. Um, but before that, I wanted to unravel a bit more about your experience as a founder Uh, and uh, you said in your bio that you crashed two of your startups into the wall in a spectacular fashion, <laughs> your words. Uh, so can you please unravel a bit more, like how was your experience as a founder um, and what have you learned uh, through your failures? Um, that's a good question. So, I mean, I crashed a lot of things in my life, but like the startups that I was talking about were people or startups that had people on payroll, right? So like I made some revenue and there were people hired. I founded more ideas than this. Um, but I think the main, one of the main learnings that I definitely took away from myself is, is that I never had co-founders, except for my father in one of the businesses that, uh, that, we were, that we were trying to run. And one of the biggest mistakes that you can do is, is that you just assume that you can do everything yourself. You know, in the end, only the stuff matters that actually does something. And I'm incredibly bad at specific things in business, right? So like reading contracts, being very, very specific. I'm very good in a strategic way. I'm very good in summarizing stuff. I'm good in thinking ahead. Um, mm -hmm. But when it comes to contracts, it's about reading the fine print, you know, like and being careful about things. And I'm really bad at that. And I always resisted off having a co-founder on board. And what that did is I still owned most of the companies that I had. Um, but the value was very little, right? So like, this is what I mean about, like, you can, you, you own a lot of the stuff that you actually did. Um, but that stuff becomes littler and littler because you're just not that good in managing the business uh, by yourself or like all by yourself. So, um, 
I think one of the big learnings was really for me to not assume that I can do everything. That has also been a learning that I had through the through my transition into more senior product leadership. And um, yeah, you just have to start to trust others to do some of your stuff better than you possibly could. And that is difficult once you become more better paid or like you get better jobs because you constantly think like, oh, now people just expect that I know everything. But, you know, it's actually exactly the inverse, right? Like if you go from an operative role of building products to managing product portfolios and guiding entire companies, that's maybe the main difference, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because um, Umbert Palan from Product Board, he also shared exactly the same insight as you, that uh, one of his uh, mistakes was that in the beginning of Product Board, he was uh, too attached to do everything and it took a lot of time to uh, raise the first series. Uh, and that's one of the learnings. So looking back, what would you have done differently so I would say there's a couple of things. First of all, yes, get a founder on board. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Um, and then the other thing is right now I have a much further like or more firm grasp on like what good product management is, right? So like we only try to ship what matters. So, you know, good metrics, things that actually do something with the customers. Mm-hmm. But before you can actually do this, you have to also define what that is, right? So like when we talk about customer success or like what is a, what is a successful usage of your product? You really need to sit down and think about, okay, like this is the product that I have and how can I segment this now into different steps of signals that are successful? What we mostly do in business is we look at the reviews that we have. We love to hear from people qualitatively, right? Like everybody's praising us in in news articles and so forth, but they don't pay the bills. Um it's good to measure at the end of whether people love your product, but you should also know beforehand, you know, like when you have, I don't know, some kind of tech product, whether people are starting to love what you do. And if they don't, why they do not, right? So like, it's less important whether you have five good reviews for your business. The question is, out of 100 people that actually started to enter your product, how many of those really started to use it? How many of those started to stay? And then how many of those that actually pay and then gave you the good reviews? Because you can really trick yourself. If it takes you a 1 million people to get five good reviews, then this entire loop of creating a business, retaining people, and then monetizing is incredibly inefficient. And this is the thing where you just have to become really, really intentional and you have to sit down and understand, okay, what does it mean to be successful with my product. It's not just the reviews on Amazon or on Google Maps or wherever you collect your stuff. It really, mm-hmm. that's just not enough. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You uh, can have your focus in the wrong things, I, I guess. Okay. Yeah, and you have to be careful about um, that if you say that I'm traveling to the airport to go to holidays. There's a lot of steps in between, right? Like I need to pack my bags and then I need to go into the garage. I need to get into the car and then drive there. So in our net, like in our real life, we do this all the time. Mm-hmm. Try to understand how to look at the entire travel. Um, but in business, we we don't do this well enough, right? We look a lot on the outcomes, like the revenue that we make, how many people that we have and so forth. But optimizing these steps in between, that's actually what separates a good business from a bad business because you can do more with the time that you have that is so limited. Yeah. 
I also wanted to explore uh, one post that you shared on your LinkedIn very recently mm -hmm. that was about your uh, PLG sales guide that you just launched very recently, uh, that you called it uh, an almost a book. And it is. It's yeah. very, very big. And you said some uh, uh, phrases there. Some of them uh, I wanted to go a bit deeper I will read one of those that you uh, wrote. That is, my energy is coming from an unhealthy place and somehow ends up in something good. I, I was a bit uh, confused by this, this sentence and I I would like to know if you could unravel a bit more. So if you mean why I do write so much or like produce so much and then also put it out mm -hmm. on the web, right? So like what that said, like that particular guide was extremely big, right? So like what I do is I sometimes just sit down and then I write for like 10 hours and just <laughs> I lock myself in a room, I write about it, and then I rewrite about it and um, and then I push it out at some point, right? So like this is the basis of my strong brand building in the end, right? Like I try to deliver free value and then I hope that something comes um, at the end. The unhealthy bit about this is, is that for me, I was someone that struggled a lot with whether what I do is valuable to people just in the first place, right? Like I had a huge imposter syndrome. I still deal with that every day to some point, right? You always feel like you don't deserve to be where you are. Um, it's a good example as well. Today, I was writing another article for one of for for my Substacks, and there's always this balance where you're not sure of is this complex enough? Does this give you enough knowledge? Right? Like, is it too basic? Um, is this exactly what people need? Is this actually good advice as well? Like, so as you start to become also more exposed, and people are also starting to listen to me. It is a bit scary if somebody says that, yes, I'm going to immediately use this, right? So like for my entire company, you're starting to suddenly affect 200 people that you've never seen. And the unhealthy bit about this is, is that if you never really believe in yourself and you wake up in the morning at some point and you feel like what I'm doing here makes no sense because you don't see the good reviews yet, because this is usually also the start of the journey, right? Like you you have to produce a lot and nothing happens. Right. So a lot of people are reading your stuff. So don't get me wrong. Right. Like a lot of people are reading your stuff, but you're locked in your head and you think so many things could go wrong. This is not valuable. People do not care about this. What if my colleagues are reading it? Right. It's it's a lot of insecurities because we tend to think a lot about ourselves way, way more than the people from the outside. And this is kind of like a delayed gratification. You have to kind of trust that something good is coming at some point. But my experience as well was that I'm now much more confident in my writing. I'm a dyslexic, right? So like I have trouble writing and reading stuff. So I make a lot of spelling mistakes sometimes. Um, so I got much, much better at this through my um, practice. But eventually once your one insecurity is gone, you start to replace it with another. You know, it's like, oh, I wish I was like this person over there, 5,000 followers, and then I suddenly have 30,000. So <laughs> this other person is gone, right? Like, and I would, then you look upwards to someone else. You kind of replace your role models. And that is, um, it's not a good thing because you constantly look for ways to kind of diminish yourself. And this is what I meant. It comes from a, from a little bit of an unhealthy place, but I learned how to utilize this because I always want to be a better version of myself. And I do not accept to 
to stop myself in the morning, right? So I do push every day something out. I, I produce something every day, not every time this big, right? Like I cannot write a book per day, um, but that's where this is coming from. So it's coming from an initially big insecurity about is what I do good enough? Thank you, Leah. This was uh, I, I could relate a lot with your answer. Um, and you, you said about the importance of believing in yourself and uh, dealing with the imposter syndrome. So I think when you talk about imposter syndrome, an important thing is, is that the skills that you have, right? So like what I can do and the tactical frameworks on how to make them efficient. So let's say you want to write also content on LinkedIn. There's a lot of ways on how to do this correct. And then there's ways on how to do it a little bit incorrect, right? But like, so the difference between a correct article could be when you post, it could be whether your hook is really strong, whether the content has an image or not, right? So like these are tactical frameworks on how to make what you write more efficient. But the underlying idea of what you write about, right? So like, let's say I want to tell you about how to create business cases and so forth, that does not change. So these tactical frameworks and these tips, how do I do something, are not really helping you to combat imposter syndrome, but that's what people assume, right? So like what they do is they ask me like, so how do you write stuff on, on on LinkedIn and then I give them all these tips and I say like look you should do this you should not edit your posts in the first hour you should uh, here's how you can structure your hooks and here's how to do this and that but the problem is even if you start to become better at it more efficient this does not deal with your imposter syndrome because you will still think that your ideas are too basic it's not good enough and the problem with this is is that we only see what we want to see from others, right? So like if you go to my LinkedIn, then you obviously see also my most successful uh, articles. But what you don't see is all the, all the ones that I deleted or the ones that you don't see because they're not being shown by the, by the algorithm. So the key question on how to overcome imposter syndrome is to make just one thing a constant. And that is your consistency. And that means, let's say you want to do something very specific. So I want to post on LinkedIn or I want to learn how to play tennis or whatever then you set yourself one constant that you're never going to violate. And that is showing up for yourself every day or every week or whatever your cadence is. And it doesn't matter how bad your article is at that point, you just push it out. That's the thing, right? So like, that's the one thing that you cannot adjust. So if you have a specific set of deliveries, so like, let's say I'm going to push every day something very specific, then I cannot adjust anymore. Um, when I like when I publish it, because I said this is a constant, but I can definitely change the quality of it, how long it is, all these kind of things, right? I can always adjust this. And what that does is it forces you to push something out and then you will learn from it. Because a lot of your stuff at the start, when you learn something new, will just suck. And that's the difficult thing about the imposter syndrome, right? It's whatever you try, if you love learning something, that means that you are learning something that you don't know yet. And that means inherently that there's a danger of an imposter syndrome because now you're learning something actually new. And this is why I mean like set yourself always a cadence that you're never going to violate. Um, and then no matter what it is, you're just going to push it out at that time. No matter how embarrassing it is, right? It is super embarrassing for me sometimes to push certain things out, but like after nine o'clock in the morning, that's it going to push it out whatever I have and that helps a lot yes uh, that's the principle of uh, atomic app it's like uh, no. 
you just have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You also referred uh, on your previous um, answer about your motivations to, to do this, like because you have a newsletter, you actually now have two newsletters, you have a podcast, you write these uh, guides, you write on LinkedIn every day. So uh, what are your motivations to, um, to do all of this? I think this is relatively simple in the sense that I want to have financial um, freedom. And what that does is, is if you have a main job, this is all you do, right? Like you have one job. There will be situations during your day where you probably are afraid of speaking up towards the CEO, towards the board, towards someone else or something that happens at your job or whatever, even though it would be the right thing to do because you feel like, oh, this is going to actually now affect my livelihood. Right. So like the more dependent that you are on your job or like if you have a family as well that you need to provide for, these things are very real concerns. And sometimes we don't really make these decisions consciously. But what that does is. I really believe that it makes you weaker as a contributor in some sense. So I also wrote an article about this, um, like I think a two, one or two weeks ago, that you should not prioritize your company over yourself. And the reason for this is, is that. If I have a product manager that is working in my teams and I know they not only have this, right? So like this job, but they also have some other income streams or they have a very, they, they don't care that much about the money in that sense. These tend to be the best people. That doesn't mean I pay them less or whatever, but it means that they will push back if I say something really stupid, even if I would give off the impression that, you know, oh, you cannot say that or this and that, right? So like people still respect titles way too much in that sense. So what this does to me is, is that I can actually be better in my main job because I have retainers on the side. So what I do is I consult sales-led companies on how to do product-led growth. My Substack is also monetized to some degree, right? So like people who want to support me, they can pay for subscriptions. I have my Discord community. All of this is kind of working together. Um but it doesn't hurt me so much if I would lose one of those. And that means every one of those that I do is very much done with intent. Nobody ever has to question themselves whether Leo wants to do something because I only do what I want um, because I don't have to, right? So like this freedom is extremely valuable and I think also plays a little bit into how good you are because you don't have to do it, right? Exactly. So you, everything you do, you do it intentionally exactly really want it. yes that's the idea well let's uh, change topic to product-led growth mm -hmm. um and uh, this is starting again to be a not topic like uh, it's uh, generating a lot of threads on linkedin and uh, i feel that there's a lot of confusion about this so let's start by defining what is product-led growth for you um, so what we do when we talk about product-led growth, then we're talking about something that is not specifically self-explanatory on what else is in the market. So usually what we have is when we talk about B2B businesses. So I am selling to B2B clients or to enterprise customers, for instance, then we usually go with sales-led approaches. And the sales-led approaches is like, I have a salesperson going out, generating interest, trying to close a company's contract, and then coming back with a lot of money, and then everybody's happy. So this is very, very acquisition-focused. 
what we are seeing right now in the market for the last five to 10 years, maybe, is that enterprise buyers and B2B customers start to behave like B2C customers like you and me as private people. And if you think about like how you are going to go and sign up for a product on the web, then usually you just, you go to the website, you sign up, you have a little trial maybe. And after seven days, if you forget about it, then you're going to go transfer into a paid service, right? So like Netflix is very product-led growth, um, Spotify and so forth. So these are inherently B2C or like end customer products. And what product-led growth does is it tries to deliver on the premise that even for B2B buyers, companies, it makes sense to not put the salesperson in front, but to give you a lot of value from the product first for free. Here's how you can sign up. There's a free trial. You can self-serve yourself as far as you want. You can still go to a salesperson if you want to, but like this, here's, here's a lot of the stuff free. Because we believe that the product will convince much, much stronger than any promise that we can make up about something. The difference is having the most amazing salesperson or marketing person in the world tell you how good an ice cream is versus saying, here, here's an ice cream, try it. This is ours. And sure, you still need to have some conviction that this is actually good. But the difference is, is that no person is giving it to you, but you can do it at your own speed. You can do it at your own time. Um, all of this is done in your kind of cadence. And what that means is it's possible that you go to a website, then you may be signing up for it. Then it takes like one or two or three months before you even make a buying decision. And that's fine. And sales-led approaches really struggle with this because they don't know how to analyze whether the buyer is now ready. There's a lot of books around like when you should reach out, when not, how do you formulate outbound messaging and so forth. And product like growth does not care about this at all. It just says like, look, if your product is good enough and really stands on itself, then this will close clients much better. Also, you will keep them for longer. Someone that signs up for your product because they love it, instead of being convinced into it, which is a simplification of what sales does, um, is going to create more revenue. The good thing is what we're now starting to do with product-led sales is we're combining both. So sales-led is people going out trying to convince and generate interest and product-led growth is like, here's a product and then you can try it as long as you want. And the combination of those two is to inform salespeople through product-led growth when a buyer is ready to be engaged and to be approached. And one of the big problems that you have otherwise is you sign up for a product. And then after 10 minutes, someone is just like knocking on your door already. Like, Hey, do you want to buy? Do you want to buy? Do you want to buy? And you're just not ready for this. And this is the big difference that we do right now. Um, and the big reason why this is working so much right now in these markets is that through AI marketing sales, everything has become easier. I'm not saying easy, but like easier, right? Like easier to fake. You can create a perfect marketing campaign relatively easy. So customers have, they struggle with differentiating products. Everybody says that they're the best in the world constantly. But who is the best? You have to kind of experience it. And that's the core hypothesis behind product like growth. And this is also why it has an incredible traction in the market. You're just better in the market if you show your product by itself rather than having to talk to a person first. That's just mm -hmm. what it is. Yeah, and so like the way salespeople work changes completely. 
Yeah. Uh, so how how do you do you integrate like this sales force into product like growth? So there are kind of three market segments that you're looking at when you do product-led growth or sales-led growth. Like if you have any company, so let's say you have a SaaS business that is selling to all parts of the market. You usually have three segments that we roughly identify. The first one is enterprise. Those are the really, really fat contracts, right? So like a lot of money. Um, then you have the mid-market segment, which is, I don't know, ten dollars to $100,000 maybe per year. And then you have the lowest, lower market segment, which is like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks to a thousand bucks per person, maybe, whatever. Uh, or like per account, depending on now how you talk about it. So in the lowest segment where there's the most people are, that's where product-led growth is. The individual value per person paying you money is not worth it for a salesperson to reach out and you know, try to help you. Even if it's just not trying to convince, but they try to close you. It's just not worth it for a little subscription on a website to have a salesperson reach out. But traditionally, if you think about these enterprise customers, the really big ones, the reason why we have salespeople on them is, is because usually a company has very, very individual needs. Someone needs to talk to them, tell them like, Hey, how do we actually integrate our product into what you do and so forth? So there it still makes sense. This makes a lot of sense that there, maybe there is nothing to self-serve. But in between, we have this really interesting segment of customers who are less worth than enterprise customers, more worth than the B2C customers, and sales cannot really touch them because they're not that valuable. And the product-led growth segment is also not really working because not everything can be self-served. So the way that this works is we say, hmm, we tell sales which one of our mid-market segment customers or prospects is ready to buy because we track what they do in the product. For instance, we could say like, if this would be Slack, then we say after having sent 2000 messages in the first 30 days, then the customer is ready to actually grow, uh, grow and upgrade or like to actually close. What this does is you reach out to smaller customers as a salesperson, but the chance to close them is much, much, much higher than if you just randomly reach out to people. So what we try to do is we try to make the entire loop much more efficient. So we help qualify leads. And some of those, let's say you bring 10 of these mid-market segment customers in, some of those at some point in the future will grow into enterprise customers. So the idea is we also grab them before they pay us a lot of money. And the way that you have to change to think on as a salesperson is you're not getting the bonus anymore when you close. So like we close a $500,000 contract, now I'm getting a big bonus and then I'm going to off into the sunset. That's not happening anymore. We try to give salespeople a bonus if the customer is successful afterwards. So what we try to do is we try to close low. I give you as little licenses as is necessary. And then I get a lot of rewards if you, if you afterwards expand. And this is extremely helpful for the customer as well because they don't risk a lot, right? Like they can, they can experience your value like in incremental steps. And if it's not a good fit, then they can still go out. And that's the principle, right? So like we also change how sales is incentivized. So they get paid if I as a customer am successful and not if there's a high number on the contract itself. That's the okay. simplified story for this. So it, uh, 
starts to be much more customer centric. And uh, so I imagine that uh, this will affect as well the metrics of the, the company. They, they will have to change to be more also customer centric, yeah. uh, right? So, so if you think about it, let's say you are, well, okay, let's really simplify this. So let's say you work in a team and your responsibility is it to keep the customers happy, whatever. In a, in a traditional company, usually what you do is you either have revenue goals or some other money metrics where we say like, you know what, you're going to be responsible to, with what you built, push the revenue by five to 10%. And it makes sense if you think about it, right? So like, because money is the reason why we are in, like, why we have a company here, right? So like, we're trying to sell a product for money. That makes sense. The problem is this is not very customer centric. And what that does is it incentivizes bad behavior as well. So if you think about it, I can make it really hard for you to unsubscribe on my website and then I make more money, of course, right? So like, but then the people are hating it, you get bad reviews and so forth. So is there some way where we know if you change that metric, then it's always a good thing or like most of the time. So let's say you are the one that is actually responsible for Slack or any communication tool. Well, we do know that the more messages people are sending between each other, that's probably a good indicator of customer success because why would I use the product if I don't have any messages to send, right? And if this is my product, then this is a very uh, clear customer indicator of engagement that actually works. So instead of telling you to influence the revenue by five to 10% in the next quarter, I would say that, hey, make our product so much better that people are starting to send more messages. Now you can still manipulate this by just like, for instance, reducing the amount of uh, characters that you can put into a message because then, you know, but you get the idea. There's a clear correlation with how often people or how intense people are using your product, not always, but most of the time, and the money that you make. The more I use my, the more I use your product, the more likely I'm going to renew my contract and then actually also stay with you. And this is measurable. And if you know what you have to look out for, then the challenge becomes really interesting. You're not anymore incentivized to just ship stuff, right? So like you're getting a bonus if you ship feature one, two, three, and four, but you're getting a bonus maybe um, if you actually increase the ratio of these success metrics. How long does someone stay on the platform? How successful is someone with our product? So let's say you have a, um, a platform product like eBay, the more money that you make with my product, the better for me because that's success for you, right? So these are these are customer success metrics that are maybe not directly tied to the revenue itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So uh, having metrics more um, connected to user engagement will uh, directly mean more revenue. So that's so you are you're trying to say is look to look more to these metrics, user engagement, how much time they spend on the app, uh, sending messages, depends on the product, and that will then translate into revenue. So you don't need to be just focused on the revenue numbers as we were previously. No. I mean, it is an oversimplified story here, right? Like yeah. not every app becomes better the more time you spend on it. I would say that dating apps are not necessarily, for instance, more successful. Um, 
But I would say there are certain signals, and this is individual per product, where you have to really sit down and figure out, okay, what is a more successful metric? So Hinge, for instance, is also a dating application, is designed to be deleted. And one of the customer successes there is that, okay, how many uh, successful dates do you have? And a successful date is meeting someone and then also giving a good review about that person. So, you know, like they will be actually asked. So they will ask you at some point whether you met someone, uh, whether it did work out and so forth. So they don't just stop with like giving you matches because that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is I need to meet someone. If we match and we get along together, then there's maybe a relationship or whatever you're looking for, right? So these are very, very intentful uh, success metrics. And if you think about it, I'm a big fan of just splitting up your product into four different steps. So when are you ready? This is the setup moment. The aha moment is the first time someone actually sees how your product works. And then you have a eureka moment. This is when they see extended value. Um, super simplified right now, right? And then you have the habit moments where they start to use your product on a very regular basis in a specific time frame. And that used to be, um, for me so far, a very successful framework on also how to do it with clients, right? So like we sit down and we try to map the entire funnel um, which then in the end becomes an actual loop. Yeah. 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 So you also advise companies, right? Yeah. Like what are the biggest misconceptions about this topic that you see companies uh, having? Um, I had a funny occurrence with someone in one of my cohorts that was trying to learn about product like growth. So I also give courses on Maven, right? So like he was one of my students um, and he marched straight to the board of the company and said like, oh, we're going to do product like growth now. And this is a sales-led company. And the problem is, is when you do sales-led um, anything and you go to the board and you say you do product like growth, based on what I just told you, people will understand what they already know about it, right? And that's not necessarily what it is. And it also needs a lot of asterisks and like, it depends. Um, you cannot just do product-led growth and get rid of sales-led. That just does not, that's the first thing. It also does not replace salespeople. It changes the way that sales works. It changes the way that marketing works as well. We didn't talk about that one, but like that's also quite important. And it also changes what you understand under the product. So instead of like just like creating a trial and then making your product cheaper, because that's what a lot of people understand, right? Then they think like, oh, now you're cannibalizing our business. What it does is it expands really the understanding of what your product is. So let's go back to the example that we had before. So if, you're, if your goal is to get the users to send more messages or use the product much more, then maybe I can do something that is outside of the product or like the core product to actually do this. So it could be with your support that you have or with um, campaigns or, uh, I don't know, like community building or whatever you have on the outside that has nothing to do with your core product. It's just like, you know, generating interest from the outside and connecting people better or setting up, um, I don't know, um, email-based engagement that is automatically happening and so forth and so forth or integrations into other products, whatever it is. None of this has to do with your core product and I frankly don't care as a product leader, as long as you make my customers love the product more. And that's a very good example of where things just change, right? So like product does not anymore mean just like, oh, product teams work on this. 
because classically what you have is you have sales over here. They have some funny ideas and then product is doing them. They hate it. And then it goes back and they kind of define deadlines that they can never hold. And then everybody's wondering why everything is so complicated and why everything is just takes so long. And the reason for this is, is that product is trying to build for retention, right? So like to make people stay with the product and sales is building for acquisition. And one of them is to close people and the other one is to keep people. And that's why you sometimes have this disconnect. And that's also where the misunderstanding comes from. Product-led growth is extremely strong. And you can also do some product-led things where you just make your product better without having to completely make a trial or a self-serve version out of it. That's definitely possible. So I see that if we shift uh, the sales success to customer success, like the, the success is defined by keeping those customers. Yes. Uh, so... It actually, so if you have three customers paying you $60 in 10 months and then they all go away and you have one customer paying you 180 in the same time frame, that one customer is more valuable. Mm -hmm. There is a problem with getting people into your products that are not good revenue. Mm -hmm. Not good revenue means people that are churning very fast, right? But what that means is, is that you have no product that gives you a good enough reason to stay for a long time. And also be through your use case, right? So like if you're selling, for instance, um, if you have a platform that makes it easy for you to sell your private house, most of us just have one house to sell, right? So like, <laughs> this is just what it is, right? Like you're, you don't have more need for this. So that's where product like growth in that sense maybe makes not a lot of sense for these particular users. Um, so that's why the answer to this is probably, yes, it depends, but yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Let's just jump to, to the AI topic. I wanted mm -hmm. to, to cover uh, this one with you because you said that you are going to start a, a newsletter uh, about AI and product. So my question to you is, how do you think AI will change the way we do product management? Um, so it comes a little bit together with what I said before. What AI does is it gets rid of a lot of the garbage stuff that you have to do every day. Um, and if you think about it, like whenever you write an email or when you write an article or something, and that can be relevant for marketing, that can be for sales and so forth, a lot of the stuff is getting more automated. We're getting more efficient with it. You have Grammarly, you have all these products that help you not make spelling mistakes, which is a godsend for me because I'm dyslexic, right? Um, so it becomes easier and easier and easier to work on the core function of your job. But what that does is exactly what I said before. Your markets become over-commoditized. That means a lot of the people who are doing the exact same thing that you do will deliver roughly the same quality. That means due to AI tooling, and making everything easier. The difference between a completely brand new junior starting in a job as a salesperson, as a marketing person or whatever, uh, or product manager is becoming less to someone that has been in the industry for 10 years because of these tools, right? Like we have templates. We don't have to start uh, completely from, from the bottom. We have sales tools that help us also to increase uh, uh, our performance like Gong or dashboards and so forth and so forth. So what that does is that it's getting harder for you as a product to differentiate yourself in a market to say like, this is the one product that I want 
based on your messaging because messaging is becoming easier and it's getting harder to differentiate yourself over building and shipping a product. It has never been easier to have an idea and then ship a product. You can probably do it within a day. It does not mean that you reach a lot of people because everybody else can do it as well, right? So like so reaching people is still the main problem that you have. Um, but yeah, you can set a product up in one day. You can register the domain. You can have a landing page generated by Midjourney, by ChatGPT. Then you can uh, slap an interface on it and then you can monetize it with Stripe or PayPal or whatever. And you have a complete product. That's crazy, right? This has never been the case before. So how do you become successful then? Because now we have all these products because the amount of money that is around in the market has not changed because we still have the same amount of people that are actually buying products, right? And my problems are not getting bigger. I just have more solutions to, to kind of satisfy them. The main difference is now it's not any more important to ship something fast. It's important to go into the right direction. And that is incredibly difficult because it's not hard to ship something but it's very hard to ship the right thing. Because if you think about it again, 10, 15 years ago, you had probably the choice between two or three products when it came to um, graphics or like Photoshop or whatever. Photoshop was there, that's it. Now you can have Canva, Figma, Zeppelin, whatever. Like there's just so many products. There's so much more choice that you need to differentiate yourself because you want to stand out. So I think to address your particular question. So what does that do? That What that does is, is that product managers need to learn how to create good business cases and strategies that actually work. And that's very easy said than done, right? And that's much, much easier said than done. But like you need to be really good in becoming like this, this eagle eye above everything. You need to zoom out. You need to understand, okay, if we're building something like this, what's going to happen to the product before you build it? Because so far we were building always with MVPs, which is like dirty version of something. You just throw it out and then you hope that something works. That does not work anymore. At least not that easy. Mm -hmm. So, okay. PMs should be focused more on business strategies and uh, addressing customer needs, right? So like- Kind of, focus. yeah. And, and maybe the one thing that I didn't, that I didn't really outline that well is that- um, you have to stop assuming things. You have to measure them. And this is why I said, like, when we look at customer success, it is measurable. How many documents did someone process? How many messages did they send and so forth? This is kind of measurable. We are incredibly bad in making predictions about what people will do in the future, even ourselves, right? So, like, uh, if I predicted that I'm going to do something tomorrow, the likelihood that this is happening or not is, like, it's hypothetical. It's very bad. Um, so you need to learn how to objectify what you think is true, because also in my experience in the last three to four years, all the experiments that I did, 70% of my assumptions were wrong. And I know this because I measured all of them. So you have an idea and you're very sure, oh, this is going to work. The majority of them are wrong. So that means if you do not measure this, then you also do not become better at it. Because if you don't measure it, then you think like, yeah, yeah, most of my most of my stuff that I did was actually successful. Um, and it's just not that simple to measure small changes in a product. It's just not that simple. So we're very good at convincing ourselves that we that we know when we actually don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. What skills do you think uh, a PM should should learn now, like in the because AI will change the the role yeah. itself. So, what should a PM be looking at now? So, one of the most difficult things for me to learn was how to do product strategy good. Um, I still think that this is very, very valuable. Also, like how to do business cases, as I just said. Um, this has to deal with the inherent nature of AI markets. Because of how fast that AI changes the markets, you don't know whether what you build today, even if it is successful, is still going to be around in a year. If you think about it this way, uh, ChatGPT was gathering a lot of users very, very, very quick. But now the question is, once you have them, you also need to defend them because there will be better products out there, you know, like that address the, the, the obvious problems that they have and so forth. So um, this is why you need to always stay ahead of this kind of stuff. And if you assume that your solution has something in it that deals with AI or machine learning, then you should also understand how AI and machine learning at least in principle works because it is not that it's it's not that intuitively easy to understand if you've never been explained it. So you need to also become a little bit technical. You don't need to code or anything. That's not what I mean. But having um, analytical skills, at least in principle, right? So like how to understand what data is and how to go into a database and also do some analysis. ChatGPT can help you with this, sure, but it will not replace it, not in the next couple of years. So I think you need to be technical to some degree. The most important thing is, is that you somehow learn how to do strategy and business casing. I'm trying to also address this with my own courses, but like I also encourage people to go to conferences and, and just like really listen to what the newest things are there that are in the market, because everything that has been written 10 to 15 years ago, you know, like the base principles are still the same. That's true. Um, but AI and machine learning, the way that it is today has been, it's completely unprecedented. Nobody did see the fast rise um, and the changes that it has right now. Yeah. So yeah, you, you said that you there's the need of being a bit technical or understand what's being done. And I imagine that's your case at Chua, uh, yeah. being the head of product. Like you need to not, you don't know exactly what's inside the machine learnings, but you uh, understand, you yeah. can explain it roughly how it works. So I think, I don't understand what exactly happens in our model. So what we do is we do weather predictions from end to end. So basically we have a model that says, look, here's all the data from the world. And then we create an, uh, an atmosphere around the globe. And then we predict the weather based on this, right? So like in two weeks in Lisbon, there will be rain or not, whatever. And I don't understand what's happening inside of the model, but I understand how machine learning works in principle to understand exactly why machine learning products are so reliant on the quality of the data that goes into it. And if you don't understand how machine learning works and you might not understand what that actually means because it's actually, it's exactly the other way around that you would, ex that you would expect. So the way that we started to talk to computers in a sense up until a couple of years ago is we gave them instructions. So we gave them a recipe and we said like, look, if you add these two eggs and then this sugar and then this flour, and then you mix it in this way, then you put it in the oven at 180, then you get a cake, then you got to get a very perfect, then you get a perfect cake. So instructions, ingredients, and then you have an output. 
So you had to describe everything. The way that machine learning works is you get a million of examples of good cakes, you get the ingredients, and then you don't tell it how to do it at all. So the model is trying to kind of figure out on how to randomly uh, combine these ingredients to get to some kind of output that is good. And the crazy thing about it is that you, even if you know, even if you built it, and if you would look inside of the model itself, you would not understand what it exactly does. It's not as simple as, oh, now I take the two eggs and then I do this. It always depends on like what kind of ingredients that you give it, whether that makes a difference because it can iterate extremely fast, but at some point it has some method that nobody understands anymore on how to make the best cake in the world, which is much, much better. And this is also how people can, can uh, talk to each other, right? Like I can tell you to be at a very specific point in time, but I don't tell you how. And why do you know how to get there? Because you did travel in your life many, many times. And I don't care whether you do it by plane, whether you just walk there and so forth. So that's one of the main differences. And you need to kind of understand this because this has a huge impact on the company strategy. I need to also secure now the quality of the data. So, and this data is not from us. Um, so I also need to make sure that the quality of the data is defended. And that's because I know how machine learning works. It's not just that easy that you can flip a switch and then you have different data come in and then everything is going to be fine. That's the difference, right? I have to make sure that the ingredients are good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you, Leah. We are reaching to the end of our conversation now. I have uh, one last question. Yes. That is... Um, about the Prototype Conference. So why should people join you uh, for your talk at the Prototype Conference in 2023? I think it will be a lot of fun. I usually talk about the same things in different contexts. Um, I will tell you maybe why the NPS is not good or why specific metrics are just not that valuable. And uh, I tend to just shake up really knowledge that people thought is going to be correct in a way that you might not expect it. But I'm very, very actionable and very operational. And I don't, I don't say anything that I don't know will work. So that's, that's what you can expect. You can expect um, a fireworks of seemingly shocking statements, but that should actually work. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you for having uh, me. Thank you.